After the coronation, Zulfikar Khan actively persecuted dozens of those nobles who had supported the dead princes. Most were imprisoned in Delhi and their property confiscated. Two emirs, however, were publicly executed. This is the first time that nobles on the losing side were punished. In the past, only the royal contenders and their progeny were killed and their property seized. New distortions in the system marked this second succession struggle to occur within five years. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion on the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-15, Farooq Siyar's Revolt. Let's begin with a brief recap of the previous episode. A succession dispute in the Maratha Kingdom leads to a civil war. For a while at least, the Marathas are not a problem for the Mughals. After the death of Guru Govind Singh, the Sikhs rise up against the Mughals. They brutally attack several towns, leading to the deaths of thousands of Muslims. Emperor Bahadur Shah dies in 1712, and another fratricidal war breaks out between his four sons. Three of his sons, Jahan Shah, Rafiul Shan, and Jahan Shah, team up against the strongest brother, Azimu Shan. After defeating Azim, the alliance falls apart and Jahan Shah, supported by the powerful noble Zulfikar Khan, emerges as the victor. Meanwhile, Azim's son, Farooq Siyar, is forming an alliance with the ambitious and powerful Sayyid brothers in Bihar. In a major break from tradition, Jahan Shah and Zulfikar Khan imprison or execute not only their rivals, but also the nobles that supported them. And now with that, let's get into the story of Jahan Shah and his downfall. Lal Kunwar The new emperor Jahan Shah was infatuated with a dancing girl named Lal Kunwar. We briefly mentioned her in the previous episode, and now that Jahan Shah was emperor, she had become his chief consort. Lal Kunwar was given the title Imtiyazul Mahal, which means esteem of the palace. Jahan Shah bestowed her with large estates, money, jewelry. He even gave her the crimson umbrella, which was usually held exclusive for members of the imperial house of Timur. Her relatives were also granted high positions, as well as the privilege of playing the royal drums while moving through town. This was very odd and unseemly because Lal Kunwar and her family were commoners. They were not members of the nobility and had not done anything significant to earn these privileges. Now, despite Lal Kunwar's high rank, Zinatun Nisa, who was the last surviving daughter of Emperor Aurangzeb, was still the lady of the royal house. That is, she was the empress. This was a title that had been bestowed upon her during Bahadur Shah's reign. Zinatun Nisa, unsurprisingly, couldn't stand Lal Kunwar and used every available opportunity to insult her. This, however, created a rift between Zinatun Nisa and her nephew, that is the emperor Jahan Darshah, who stopped talking to her. 
Emperor Jahan Darashah would also hold these wild drinking parties with Lal Kunwar and her family and friends where they drank until they passed out. The emperor and Lal Kunwar would also take secret trips into the city where they would get drunk and often pass out in public. It was not a good look for the emperor to be seen unconscious in public with a former dancing girl. There's one story where Emperor Jahan Darshah and Lal Kunwar were relaxing by a river watching boats go by. Lal Kunwar just happened to mention that she had never seen a man drown. And so she ordered one of the boats in the river to be capsized and the men drowned just to satisfy her curiosity. There's another story where one of her friends, perhaps another dancing girl, her name was Zohra, and she insulted a man named Chin Kalish Khan. We mentioned him in the previous episode. Chin Kalish Khan was the former governor of Bijapur and the son of the blind general Ghaziuddin Feroz Jung. This woman, this associate of Lal Kunwar, called Chin Kalish Khan the son of a blind man, and Chin Kalish Khan's men beat her up for her insult. But Chin Kalish Khan knew that this could be trouble. First of all, he had not yet paid homage to the new emperor. He had not gone to Jahan Darshah and submitted to him as a subject. If Zohra complained to Lal Kunwar, Lal Kunwar would go and complain to Emperor Jahan Darshah, and then Chin Kalish Khan could expect some trouble to come his way. Chin Kalish Khan preemptively went to Zulfikar Khan to give his side of the story and he also made sure to note that he was concerned about the negative influence surrounding the new emperor. And by this, of course, he meant Lal Kunwar and her family and her associates. Zulfikar Khan, like most of the other nobility, was also fed up with Jahan Darshah hanging out with such low-class people. So he wrote a strongly worded note warning the emperor, warning Jahan Darshah not to do anything to Chin Kalish Khan. He warned him that doing so would be an insult to the nobility. And Jahan Darshah got the message and he understood the implied threat. Basically, this letter was telling him that if he did anything to Chin Kalish Khan, the nobility might turn against him and he might be faced with a revolt. So Jahan Darashah wisely ignored Zohra and Lal Kunwar's complaints about the matter. Nonetheless, there was still a lot of consternation, concern, raised eyebrows within the nobility about the new emperor's infatuation with this dancing girl, Lal Kunwar. They were also concerned and worried and upset about the crazy rise of Lal Kunwar's family from musicians and performers to the nobility class. The Revolt of Farooq Siyar As we mentioned in the previous episode, Farooq Siyar and his army were in Bihar where the Sayyid brothers pledged their support for him. With the Sayyid brothers backing him, Farooq Siyar proclaimed himself emperor, had coins minted, and then had the khutbah read in his name. Then he promised to make the two Sayyid brothers his prime minister and army paymaster once he captured the throne. Meanwhile, Jahan Darshah, the current emperor, had appointed a new governor for Allahabad, a man named Abdul Ghaffar. Now, back in episode 13, we mentioned how Bahadur Shah had made Hassan Ali Khan, that is, Abdullah Khan, 
governor of this province, the province of Allahabad. Hassan Ali Khan, also known as Abdullah Khan, he was the elder of the two Sayyid brothers. We're just going to call him Sayyid Abdullah to make it easy to differentiate him from the other brother. So Abdul Ghaffar was arriving to take over Allahabad and Sayyid Abdullah sent an army to intercept him. Within this army included three of Sayyid Abdullah's younger brothers who were also Sayyids, along with the elite troops from the Barha Sayyids. Included within this army were three of Sayyid Abdullah's younger brothers, along with elite troops from the Barha Sayyids. Now, mentioning a lot of names, I'm going to try to differentiate some things for you. Barha is the name of the family that these Sayyids belong to, Sayyid Abdullah, Sayyid Hussein, and the three brothers in the army, they belong to the Barha family. That was the name of the family. Sayyid is a title that's often given to descendants of Prophet Muhammad However, I want to make it clear that it is very unlikely that these guys were truly descendants of the Prophet. Most likely this is just some fabrication someone in their ancestry, their ancestors had made up. Anyway, there was a brief skirmish between Abdul Ghaffar, that is Jahan Darashah's new governor for Allahabad, and the existing governor, the current governor, Sayyid Abdullah of the Sayyid brothers. There's a brief skirmish between the two sides, and one of the younger Barha brothers was killed. However, Abdul Ghaffar was forced to turn back, and he was not able to take his place as the governor of Allahabad. When Jahan Darshah learned what happened, he sent a letter, a conciliatory letter to the Barha family trying to reconcile with them. But the damage had already been done, and there was a rising tide of anger and resentment from the empire's noble class against its new emperor. More and more nobles were starting to side with Farooq Siyar, including many of his father's supporters. Remember, Farooq Siyar was the son of Azim, who was the son of Bahadur Shah. With these nobles rallying around Farooq Siyar, he was able to raise a strong army, and on September 22, 1712, the army started marching towards Delhi. Just to give you the logistics of how this was working out, Farooq Siyar was in Bihar, which is about 600 miles east of Delhi, going east from Delhi towards Bengal. Allahabad was roughly in the middle, about 300 miles east of Delhi and 300 miles west of Bihar. So the army left Bihar and reached Allahabad on November 5th, where Sayyid Abdullah and his men joined them. Remember, Sayyid Abdullah had led the army to intercept Abdul Ghaffar, who was Jahandar Shah's new governor for Allahabad, but he never was able to take his place. When news of the approaching army reached Delhi, Jahandar Shah decided to send his son Azuddin to meet it and go fight it. But Azuddin had no experience. And so both Zulfikar Khan and Azuddin himself protested against this idea and said this was a bad idea because Azuddin didn't know what he was doing. Jahan Darshah, for some reason, decided to send Kani Duran along with Azuddin. Kani Duran was related to Kolkatash. Kolkatash was Jahandar's foster brother who also wanted to be the prime minister, but could not because Zulfikar Khan held that position. But the thing is that Kani Duran was also inexperienced and incompetent to boot. So here was Jahan Darshah sending two incompetent commanders to lead an army against Farooq Siyar and the Sayyid brothers who kind of knew what they were doing. 
In addition to the incompetence and the inexperience of the leadership of this army coming from Jahan Darshah, the army was also rife with bickering and rivalries. This chaos was created by Farooq Sayyar's spies who had secretly infiltrated Jahan Darshah's army. Well, the two armies finally clashed at Kajuha on November 25, 1712. What happened next shows the inexperience of the leadership of this army. Once Farooq Sayyar's artillery opened up on the imperial army, Kani Daran, the guy who Jahan Darshah has sent to help his son Azuddin, Kani Daran, who had never seen battle before, lost his nerve and started telling Azuddin, we got to get out of here. We have to withdraw. Now, Azuddin, to his credit, initially, he refused to do so. He wanted to stand his ground. But over time, eventually, he was convinced that this was the right thing to do. Two days later, in the middle of the night, Kani Daran, Azuddin, his wife, and a small escort fled into the night while his surviving soldiers were still sleeping. He left his wealth behind, he left his harem behind, he left his soldiers behind, and these guys did not stop running until they reached Agra. When the army woke up the next morning and realized their leadership, their commanders, Azuddin and Kani Daran, had fled, they also abandoned the fight. Now Emperor Jahandar Shah was desperate. He begged Chen Kalish Khan, that was the guy who had been insulted by Zohra Lal Kunwar's buddy, he begged Chen Kalish Khan and the other Turani nobles for help. Remember, Turani meant people who were originally from Central Asia. Chen Kalish Khan and these nobles, even if they wanted to help, and many of them didn't want to help, Jahandar Shah no longer had an army, they had dispersed. And he needed to raise a new army, but in order to do so, he needed money. So they went down to the treasury of Agra, opened it up, and found that it was completely empty. And to this day, no one knows exactly what happened to all of the wealth that had supposedly been accumulating since the time of Babur. So now Jahan Darshah, he had no choice but to start collecting the family jewels and personal gold items to raise an army. He was able to eventually do so, and Zulfikar Khan led the army towards Agra to confront Farooq Sayyar and the Sayyid brothers. Jahandar Shah and Lal Kunwar went along with Zulfikar Khan as well. Zulfikar Khan, however, believed that the rebels, that is, Farooq Sayyar and the Sayyid brothers and their army, he believed that they would be tired after such a long march. But what he did not know was that Farooq Siyar had already contacted the nobility in the area and struck deals with them. So Chen Kalish Khan and the Tehrani nobles had agreed to remain neutral in the war between Jahan Darshah and Farooq Siyar. On January 7th, 1713, Farooq Siyar's army crossed the river near Sikandra, west of Agra, while the imperial army waited at Samogar, east of Agra. The battle took place on January 10th, 1713. During the early phases of the battle, Sayyid Hussein, that's one of the Sayyid brothers, was injured and rumors spread that he had been killed. This news caused Farooq Siyar's army to waver and for a moment, it seemed as if the imperial army just might win. However, the Sayyid brothers rallied and launched a daring attack on the imperial forces which boosted the rebel army's courage. And now, as momentum swung in the rebels' favor, Lal Kunwar reached over to the emperor and said, We need to go. 
She advised the emperor, it is time to get out of here. She had no desire to die in battle. The emperor, to his credit, I guess, took her advice and jumped into the howdah on her elephant, and they both fled the battle. Zulfikar Khan had no idea that his emperor and his emperor's wife had fled the battle. Zulfikar Khan continued to direct the army and manage the fight, but when he realized that the emperor and Lal Kunwar were no longer there, he also fled with the remainder of the army back to Delhi. Meanwhile, Emperor, current Emperor Jahandar Shah, disguised himself by shaving his beard and putting on normal clothes. He dropped off Lal Kunwar at Kol Katash's home, that's his foster brother's home, and then he went to the home of Asad Khan, that is Zulfikar Khan's father, seeking refuge. He arrived really late at night, looking crazy and in horrible shape with his face shaved and wearing these bad clothes. It took him a while to actually convince the guards that he really was the emperor. Well, Asad Khan came down to expect and he recognized the emperor and he invited Jahandar Shah in. And not too long after Jahandar Shah arrived, Zulfikar Khan also arrived at his father's house. And so father and son, Asad Khan and Zulfikar Khan, they began discussing their next moves. And what happens next is probably not going to surprise you. Asad Khan, the father, he wanted to turn Jahandar Shah over to Farooq Siyar. It was obvious that the game was over, Farooq Siyar had won, he was going to take the throne, and from Asad Khan's perspective, they needed to jump on this wave while they could. Zulfikar Khan, however, was still holding some loyalty to his emperor. He wanted to escape with Jahandar Shah to perhaps Multan or Kabul or the Deccan and try to raise another army and go back and fight again. But inevitably, unsurprisingly, Asad Khan convinced his son to betray the emperor. Asad Khan's men grabbed Jahandar Shah and threw him into prison, and then the old man sent a message to Farooq Siyar congratulating him, letting him know, I got the former emperor for you, and then he had the khutbah read in Farooq Siyar's name. After the Battle of Agra The next day, Farooq Siyar held court in Agra, and the khutbah was read in his name. Azuddin, that is, Jahan Shah's son, was discovered hiding in Darashiko's mansion in Agra. He was quickly captured and blinded. As promised, Farooq Siyar appointed Sayyid Abdullah as his new prime minister, and Sayyid Abdullah went on to Asad Khan's home in Delhi to take custody of Jahan Shah. His brother, Sayyid Hussein Ali, was declared the Bakshi or the army paymaster. However, Sayyid Hussein Ali was still recovering from the wounds he had sustained during the battle, so he would be incapacitated for a while. Other nobles were also given significant positions. A man named Shariatullah Khan was titled Mir Jumla. Khwaja Asim was given the title of Khani Daran. And then Takarub Khan became Miri Saman or the Minister of Logistics. If that name sounds familiar, Takarub Khan was the former Prime Minister for Kambaksh during his brief reign in the Deccan. Now these three nobles did not trust the Sayyid brothers nor the power that they suddenly held in the empire and they decided to form an alliance against them. Let's read an excerpt that summarizes this change in administration. The Usurper 
only marginally less debauched, but probably more evil even than his predecessor, now established a reign of terror in which quite a number of high-ranking nobles were executed. Such executions, however, only worsened Farouk Siyar's fundamental problems. His own indecisiveness, lack of talent and weakness of character, and his heavy reliance on two mighty courtiers and kingmakers, the so-called Sayyid brothers, Sayyid Hassan Ali Khan Barha, 1666-1722, and Sayyid Hussein Khan Barha, 1668-1720. These two competent, but dangerously ambitious and utterly ruthless men had been governors of Allahabad and Patna respectively. Their military support had helped Farouk Siyar gain the throne, as a result of which they had been rewarded with the highest offices, but the king quickly became apprehensive of their power. His treacherous, but ineffective, attempts to get rid of them would ultimately seal his doom. Dirk Collier, The Mughals and Their India so from this excerpt, we understand that Farouk Siyar was starting to get kind of apprehensive about the Sayyid brothers also, and that he tries but fails to try to get rid of them. Let's see how that happens. Farouk Siyar is now on the throne, and as we probably come to expect, it's time for the bloody retributions to begin. While he was in Delhi to take custody of Jahan Shah, the former emperor, Sayyid Abdullah met with Zulfikar Khan. And he talked with him and persuaded him and his father to seek the emperor's forgiveness. It had been the norm previously before Jahan Darashah broke the, the system. It had been the norm to forgive and sometimes even restore titles to nobles from the losing side. This would ensure their loyalty for the new regime. Jahan Darashah, as we mentioned, had broken this rule by killing some of the nobles under his brothers. The three nobles that we mentioned above, however, did not really like this idea. They were really worried about an alliance between the Sayyid brothers and Zulfikar Khan and his father Asad Khan. That would be just too influential, too powerful, and too dangerous. We have already seen that Zulfikar Khan could be very ruthless himself. And the Sayyid brothers, as we'll soon see, inshallah, they weren't too far behind. And Asad Khan, I mean, come on, he had been so quick to betray Jahan Shah as soon as he saw that momentum was shifting. With this concern, the alliance of the three nobles that we had mentioned earlier, Shariatullah Khan, Khwaja Asim, Takarub Khan, they began whispering in Farooq Siyar's ears, turning him against Zulfikar Khan. So when Asad Khan and Zulfikar Khan came to meet with Farooq Siyar, he welcomed them, he hugged them, and he gave them all sorts of gifts. And then Emperor Farooq Siyar asked Asad Khan to leave the room for a while so he could speak with Zulfikar Khan privately. And as soon as Asad Khan was gone, Farooq Siyar's guards jumped out and beat Zulfikar Khan to death. Meanwhile, the deposed Emperor Jahan Darashah was taken from his cell to the execution room and strangled to death with a tasma, that is, a Turkish bowstring. As for Alal Kunwar, the former emperor's chief consort, some say that she remained with him until the end and had to be forcibly separated from him. But other stories say that she quietly left right before Jahan Darshah went to Asad Khan's home in Delhi and that she was never seen again. Jahan Darshah's head was removed from his body, placed on a pike, and paraded through the city. And then his headless body was placed on top of an elephant. 
As for the former emperor's primary advisor, Zulfikar Khan, his body was tied to the foot of that same elephant. And you know what happens when an elephant steps on something. As the elephant walked, Zulfikar Khan's body was squished beneath its weight. Eventually, both bodies were taken and dumped outside the city gates. But Farooq Siyar was not done yet. He sent his men throughout the city to round up every single prince they could find. This included his own little brother who was only 13 years old. All of these princes were either blinded or killed. And in this manner, Farooq Siyar made sure that there were no other rivals to the throne. Ajit Singh Emperor Farooq Siyar had also appointed a man named Ajit Singh, the Rajput Raja of Marwar, as the governor of Gujarat. We have discussed Ajit Singh before, back in episodes 9-10 and 9-12. Ajit Singh had been brought to Delhi as a child to be raised in the Mughal court, but his mother escaped with him because she was afraid that he'd be raised as a Muslim. In 1713, Farooq Siyar ordered Ajit Singh to transfer to Tata, which is in southern Pakistan. Ajit Singh refused to transfer, he refused this order, and so Emperor Farooq Siyar sent Sayyid Hussein, one of the Sayyid brothers, the younger of the two Sayyid brothers, with an army to go punish him. Farooq Siyar also sent his uncle Shaysta Khan along with the Sayyid. This was because Farooq Siyar wanted to get Sayyid Hussein killed. He was hoping that if fighting broke out between the Rajputs and the Imperial Army, Sayyid Hussein would be killed because the odds were stacked up against them. But this plan did not quite work out. As soon as he saw the Imperial Army approaching, Ajit Singh got scared and immediately asked to negotiate a truce. Shaista Khan agreed to negotiate, but because he was also trying to get Sayyid Hussein killed, he set these near-impossible conditions. He was hoping to provoke a clash between the two armies and make it easier to get rid of Sayyid Hussein. One of the conditions that Shaista Khan had given was that Ajit Singh's daughter would marry the emperor, Farooq Siyar. In addition to this, she would also have to convert to Islam. Shaista Khan felt there was no way Ajit Singh would accept these terms and he would definitely reject them and the war would start and Sayyid Hussein could be eliminated. But Ajit Singh was so afraid of the Imperial Army, he agreed to these conditions and these guys had to follow through with the promise. And so now Ajit Singh found himself as the father-in-law of the Mughal Emperor. Dealing with the Sikhs In the previous episode, we mentioned how Baha Shah had led the imperial army and had defeated the Sikhs led by Banda Bairagi. However, Banda Bairagi managed to escape along with several of his soldiers and they settled in Jammu. This is just north of the Punjab region of modern Pakistan. In 1713, a man named Abdus Samad Khan was appointed as the governor of Lahore. Farooq Siyar gave him the orders to deal with the Sikh rebellion that was still going on. Abdus Samad Khan defeated the Sikhs at Sadora, which is about 110 miles north of Delhi in October 1713, but once again, Banda Bairagi escaped. Banda then constructed a fort named Gurdaspur in the Doab area, which is just south of Jammu. Gurdaspur is a combination of three words, Guru Daspura, and it means the city of the Guru's servants. 
In April 1715, the Imperial Army arrived and put this new fort at Gordaspur under siege. The siege was so bad and so severe that the Sikhs within the fort began to starve. They had eaten all available animals, and even when the animals were all gone, they ground up the animal's bones and ate that as well. Now, surprisingly, eventually disease and sickness began to spread among the Sikhs in the fort. Finally, on December 17, 1715, Banda Bairagi surrendered to the Imperial Army. As soon as they surrendered, hundreds of Sikhs were beheaded right there on the spot. Their heads were loaded into ox carts, then raised on pikes as a warning to others, and their bodies were left behind to rot. Those Sikh prisoners who were not executed were paraded through the streets of Lahore and Delhi, dressed in animal skins, seated on donkeys with dunce caps on their heads. But it's not over yet. Banda Bairagi, the Sikh leader, was brought before Emperor Farooq Siyar in Delhi. One of the nobles, a man named Muhammad Amin Khan, asked Banda Bairagi, the Sikh leader, why did he kill so many innocent Muslims? We mentioned the brutal devastation that the Sikhs had put upon the Muslims in the previous episode. Banda replied that this is what happens in all religions, in all faiths. When people become corrupt and wicked and oppressive, God sends someone as a scourge. And this scourge is meant to punish those wicked people. But once the punishment is complete, God then sends men like this noble Muhammad Amin Khan to stop the scourge. Muhammad Amin Khan then asked the Sikh leader, what oppression was he referring to? And Banda replied that the emperor, he pointed to the emperor, the emperor had killed or blinded many of his own cousins and had even blinded his own little brother. When Farooq Siyar heard this, he went into a rage and ordered Banda thrown into the dungeons and had him tortured. And then all of his remaining followers who were in custody, they were given the choice to accept Islam or be executed. Obviously, none of them took this offer and the executions began on March 15th, 1716. The executions lasted for about a week and finally, on June 19, 1716, Banda Bairagi himself was publicly tortured and executed. The EIC and the Emperor Emperor Farooq Siyar appointed a man named Murshid Kuli Khan as governor of Bengal. If that name sounds familiar, that's because we have spoken about him before. We discussed Murshid Kuli Khan in episode 6 of this season. He was a Hindu who had converted to Shia Islam, and he had helped Aurangzeb fix the Deccan's horrible financial situation back when Aurangzeb was still governor of the Deccan before he became the emperor. Murshid Kuli Khan did not trust the English in Bengal, and he demanded that they pay poll taxes just like all the other traders in the region. Well, the EIC, they sent a delegation to meet with the emperor to protest what they considered unjust taxation, unfair taxation. And as it happened, Emperor Farooq Siyar was suffering from some sickness when the English delegation arrived. The emperor's Indian doctors had not been able to heal him. And again, as it happened, amongst the English delegation was a Scottish doctor named William Hamilton. 
William Hamilton offered to treat Emperor Farouk Siyar, and soon after, the emperor started feeling better. Farouk Siyar was so grateful that he asked the doctor to name his reward. And William Hamilton asked for the following. He asked for all taxes that had been levied on the East India Company to be levied. He asked for permission for the EIC to acquire even more land in Bengal, and he asked for authorization, permission for the EIC to mint their own coins, using the emperor's mints, but not using the emperor's coins. And in 1717, Farouk Siyar granted all of Dr. Hamilton's requests. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about a family called the Jagat Sets. The Jagat Sets were a prominent and influential group of bankers and financiers in India. The term Jagat Set was actually an honorific title given to the family, and it means Banker of the World. This family, the Jagat Set family, originated from the Marwar region of modern-day Rajasthan, India, and they practiced Jainism. The Jagat Set family was very successful, they were very wealthy merchants, and they helped to conduct and facilitate extensive trade and banking activities during the Mughal era. The Jagat Sets played a significant role in financing the Mughal government, they funded various Mughal military campaigns, and they helped to manage the empire's financial affairs. The Jagat Sets were middlemen and financiers for global trade networks passing through India. They acted as intermediaries, basically, between the Mughal administration and the European trading companies, especially the EIC. And they also helped to finance trade between India and Europe. Between 1718 and 1730, the EIC borrowed almost half a million rupees a year from the Jagat Sets. I'm going to read an excerpt that further describes the influence of the Jagat Sets. As the country grew increasingly anarchic, Murshid Kuli Khan found innovative ways to get the annual tribute to Delhi. No longer did he send caravans of bullion guarded by battalions of armed men. The roads were now too disordered for that. Instead, he used the credit networks of a family of Marwari Oswal Jain financiers originally from Nagar in Jodhpur state, to whom in 1722 the emperor had awarded the title Jagat Sets, the bankers of the world, as a hereditary distinction. Controlling the minting, collection, and transfer of the revenues of the empire's richest province from their magnificent Murshidabad palace, the Jagat Sets exercised influence and power that were second only to the governor himself, and they soon came to achieve a reputation akin to that of the Rothschilds in 19th century Europe. The historian, Ghulam Hussein Khan, believed that, their wealth was such that there is no mentioning it without seeming to exaggerate and to deal in extravagant fables. A Bengali poet wrote, As the Ganges pours its water into the sea by a hundred mouths, so wealth flowed into the treasury of the sets. Company commentators were equally dazzled. The historian, Robert Orme, who knew Bengal intimately, described the then Jagat set as the greatest shroff and banker in the known world. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. So that's going to end it for today. Inshallah, in the next and final episode of this season, 
we will discuss the growing chaos in the Mughal dynasty as multiple emperors rise and fall. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Even though the Soviet military used this elaborate and complex mix of combined forces, they had helicopters, fighter planes, bombers, reconnaissance troops, tanks, ground forces, artillery. Even though they had all this fancy stuff, most of the time, it was not very effective. Now, the Soviet forces might clear an area of Mujahideen, but it was a very slow and expensive process. The Mujahideen knew the terrain. They knew the area. They knew the fighting grounds. And they would hide while the operation was going on or sometimes just leave the area completely without trying to engage them. If the Soviet forces were too overwhelming, they would just leave. But as soon as the Soviets were gone, the Mujahideen would come right on back. The Soviets often conducted raids and sweeps in conjunction with the official Afghanistan army. However, as we know from previous episodes, the Afghan army was severely depleted. Nearly half of its army, even before the Soviets fully invaded in late December 1979, half of its army had already defected even back then. These defections led to security leaks. It's very easy to understand. If you have soldiers leaving, just taking their guns or taking off the uniforms and going back home, they still have connections with those who stayed within the military. They're often part of the same family or at least maybe the same tribe or same community. And when the Soviet Union planned an operation and they wanted to do it with the Afghan army, how difficult would it be for that information to flow down into the defected soldiers who very often went and joined the Mujahideen? So many of these joint operations were leaked to the Mujahideen, giving them ample time to prepare for them. So with this prior knowledge, the Mujahideen could leave a region and trick the Soviets into thinking that the region was secure. 
The Soviet troops would then continue their sweep. They would basically say that, all right, well, this region is secure. Let's go to the next region and keep going like that, getting deeper and deeper into the mountains. And as they went deeper into the mountains, the radio communications began to fail. They didn't work so well in these regions. So I want to read to you an excerpt from an analysis on these tactics from the Military History Department at the Frunz Academy in Moscow. Quote, This operation was thoroughly planned. However, it was not able to overcome its inherent problems. It began with the security leaks. Our intelligence picture of Mujahideen's strengths and the lines of communication was poorly developed. The enemy knew the scheme of maneuver for our Afghan and Soviet forces well in advance and was able to adjust the situation by maneuvering his forces into threatened sectors or away from planned strikes. When conducting a sweep over such an extensive area, a commander cannot relax even for a minute. The enemy lulled our forces from vigilance to complacency by secretly withdrawing from the first villages prior to our sweep. Then, they initiated combat at the time and place of their own choosing. Communication was a problem throughout the operation. This led to a loss of control and a loss of current information on the status and situation of the subunits. Coordination between the Afghan battalion and the supporting artillery was unsatisfactorily organized. Unquote. So as we can see from this analysis, after several days of sweeping a mountain area and no action, the Soviet troops were lulled into a false sense of security. And then deep in the mountains, with poor radio communications or no radio communications, and unaware, the Mujahideen would strike and inflict heavy casualties on the Soviets. In the next episode, inshallah, we'll discuss some of the tactics used by the Mujahideen. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.